All right, Alexander, let's do an update as to what is going on in Ukraine. We have a lot to talk about, so I'll just give a quick rundown of what's going on, and you can elaborate on everything. We do have some success in, uh, in the offensive, but it's coming from the Russian side in the Svatovo area. Um, you can talk about what's happening there. We had drone strikes here in Moscow, uh, no casualties. We had drone strikes in Crimea, a, a larger larger drone strikes in Crimea. Uh, from what I understand, they were all repelled as well. And uh, you you have a lot of uh, interesting comments and statements coming from Zelensky, where he says that uh, the fault of the counteroffensive, the reason it's a failure, is because the Ukraine troops were not uh, trained properly in these weapons, and it gave the Russians time to to build defenses because they couldn't launch a spring counteroffensive. You have the Wall Street Journal uh, saying that uh, the, the U.S. government kind of knew that Ukraine was going to fail, but they said they were hoping that the courage and the spirit would carry them through the, the counteroffensive. Uh, you have the Kiev Post putting up an interesting article saying that for every 100 meters, three to five Ukrainian men uh, uh, die. Uh, it seems that um, you have uh, Blinken saying that 50% of the, uh, of the territory has been catch, retaken by Ukraine, that Russia initially catch. We have a lot of different um, statements, finger pointing, some blame game, but a lot of different statements came out uh, over the weekend. And then, of course, you had Putin's statement about uh, 26,000 uh, casualties and a lot of casualties from mercenaries as well. So a lot of activity going on. We do have a counteroffensive breakthrough. Uh, everything in Zaporozhye and Kherson seems pretty, pretty static. Nothing. I, I haven't seen any any movement there. Heavy fighting in Rapatino, but for the most part, the, the, the big movement is in the Kharkiv area, as well as all kinds of statements from all kinds of collectivist officials and from Zelensky. And it seems like they're all trying to put the blame on someone as to why this is a failure. So uh, pick which one uh, you want to well, talk about first, and uh, uh, let's, uh, let's add I, I some think, context to all of this. I think you've covered it. I think, again, you've covered it very concisely and very comprehensively. Just a few things. First of all, um, this talk about Ukraine paying huge price in blood for every 100 meters that it gains. Um, I haven't seen any evidence up to this point that Ukraine has actually gained any ground in any place that it's able to hold whatsoever for several weeks now. I mean, they gained some ground, some open fields and such things in the first weeks of the offensive. But more recently, in the last two weeks or so, so far as I can see, it's at least in the south, it's ground to a complete stop. So what they're actually doing is worse than what the Kiev Post said. They are losing lives, attacking, but making no progress whatsoever. And they're losing lives and they're losing tanks and infantry fighting vehicles and, of course, shells. Now you can, to some extent, replace or repair the tanks and the infantry fighting vehicles. Some of them, of course, get completely destroyed, but some of them you can take back to your front lines, ship them back to Poland, have them repaired there. It takes a while, but at least you can bring those back. But, of course, shells you can't replace uh, because the U.S. itself tells us that they've run out. And men, 
you're having increasing trouble replacing. I mean, more and more of them are dying. And there's been reported, a long report today in the New York Times, that um, human casualties in the Ukraine military have been horrific, that the men who are now being brought into service are older. That makes them less uh, reliable and effective as soldiers, less willing to obey orders. The whole thing in terms of the offensive, the Ukrainian offensive, is dreadful. And you see increasing recriminations. So you get people like Zelensky, we weren't given enough training, we weren't given enough weapons, it was all delayed for too long. In fact, he's actually to some extent reversing things, because if you remember, if you take your mind back to what was going on in the spring, um, the weapons had been supplied, many of them, the training had been provided, you were getting all these slightly irritated reports coming from the US, where is this offensive, uh, promises to get this offensive going, Lindsey Graham went to Kiev and had to be given the plan of the offensive, the Americans at that time were pushing the Ukrainians to launch the offensive, it's not true that the Ukrainians were, you know, straining at the leash to launch the offensive earlier, and that it was the West that delayed them. If anything, it was the other way round. But the fact is, everybody can now see that the offensive was misconceived. And in fact, the reason the Ukrainians were reluctant to launch the offensive is because they knew perfectly well that they were, that they were facing these formidable Russian defences. They probably had a better sense of how strong the Russian army was than people in the West did, in the United States did. And we now have this, I find it absolutely infuriating article in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, I, 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 I was angry when I read it, saying you know, that we supplied Ukraine, Ukraine was supplied with inadequate weapons and inadequate training. And the hope was that they would breakthrough because of their better spirits of courage and skill and all of that. That isn't true. That isn't true either, by the way. The, the US has a pretty good understanding, I think, of the Ukrainian army. What they thought would happen was that the Russians would turn tail and run, that they assumed they believed their own propaganda about the Russian military being corrupt, disorganized, demoralized, all of those kind of things. But come back to the cynicism. Who pushes an army to launch an offensive with inadequate weapons and inadequate training in the hope that its superior spirit will break through? I mean, that is terrible. You don't do that, at least, not that I can understand you don't do that. If you can't provide Ukraine with the necessary numbers of weapons and the necessary amounts of ammunition and the unnecessary amounts of training, well, you don't ask them. You don't tell them to conduct the kind of offensive that they have been strong-armed into launching and which they have been fighting over the last few weeks with these terrible losses. And of course, Putin and Lukashenko had another discussion 
Uh, Lukashenko said that he was a former military officer himself. He's able to do calculations about losses by just looking at the numbers of um, armored vehicles that are destroyed. He said that he calculates that at least 26,000 men have been killed, not killed and wounded, killed. And Putin said it's actually higher than that. Ukraine is suffering even more losses than this. He didn't say how many, but it's more than 26,000. And he said that lots of foreign mercenaries, foreign fighters have been killed as well. And Putin said that the uh, offensive is failing. He says he's not making any progress. And as you absolutely correctly say, there is progress on the battlefields. There is movement on the battlefields, but it is movement in the north where the Russians are steadily pushing forward. It's not dramatic. It's not you know, a blitzkrieg or anything like that. But last night, there were more reports that they've now crossed the Jarebets River. They're moving towards the Oskov River. They're coming very close. They are very close to Kupiansk, uh, town in Kharkov region, which Ukraine recaptured in its offensive last year. Uh, they're very close to Liman as well, Krasny Liman, which was in some ways the high point of Ukraine's Kharkov counteroffensive. As we've discussed in previous programs, if the Russians recapture these places, maybe not in the West, but in Ukraine itself, the psychological effect will be devastating. It will be a sign that all that effort last year was for nothing, that the Russians are coming back and they're, and they're keeping the, um, and, and they're taking back whatever ground it was that Ukraine was able to recover. And two last points, firstly about Blinken. You know, the offensive, the big offensive is still coming. The Ukrainians have recaptured, already recaptured 50% of the territory that um, the Russians initially captured. But the reason he's saying all of this is because Blinken, Newland, and that crowd in the State Department are the arch hawks. They're the people who want to keep the war going. They're the people who want to keep the offensive going. Victoria Newland actually came forward and even said that the United States has helped to plan the offensive. She's been intimately involved in it. I understand that there are even some people who informally call it the Vicky Newland offensive. I mean, I, you know, I, I can't confirm that, but I've heard rumours that this is what people are saying. So they don't want to accept that this thing is failing. And by talking in this way, they are basically telling Ukraine to keep it going, despite all the horrible losses that Ukraine is suffering from. And so in the meantime, Ukraine launches these pinprick attacks. It sends drones to Crimea, all of which get shot down or brought down. They launch even more pinprick attacks on Moscow. They don't change anything. I doubt by now that they're having any effect on morale in Ukraine itself. And even as all of these little pinpricks are happening, we've seen these devastating Russian missile strikes on Odessa, on the Black Sea ports, being absolutely hammered there. And even Ukraine is now admitting that it can't shoot most of the missiles down. Where before they claimed they were shooting down 90% of the missiles, they can only shoot down less than half. 
And that's what the Ukrainians themselves now say. So, a debacle is evolving in Ukraine, a military debacle. The Russians are advancing. The Ukrainians are at a standstill. The Ukrainians are being forced for political reasons to keep attacking. They're suffering horrific losses. And their country, more and more of their country, is being taken apart every day with more Russian missile strikes, more, uh, more destruction. I mean, the, the whole thing is just appalling. And it goes on like this day after day. And the latest word from the Russians, echoing thoughts that apparently General Zaluzhny, the Ukrainian commander, has, is that sometime towards the end of August, this Ukrainian offensive effort will finally collapse because it can't be sustained beyond that. So uh, the, the picture that you've painted is, is, is a terrible one for, for the collective West, for uh, Zelensky and for Ukraine. On all fronts, the grain is done. The revenue there is gone. Uh, the support decimated. Nothing's going to leave there. Uh, the, the, the situation in Kharkov, all the gains that they allegedly made in the Great Kharkov Offensive being wiped away. Uh, the situation in Zaporozhye, Kherson, is not going anywhere. They've lost, you know, the, the number 26,000, even if it is 26,000, we know, according to Stoltenberg and Milley and Austin, the numbers they gave us, they gave us these numbers that they had trained around 60,000, plus or minus is what they've said, around 60,000 Ukraine troops for this counteroffensive. And you have 26,000 now that are, uh, these are the numbers that Putin, the Ministry of Defense, they're claiming. Even if it's 20,000, even if it's 20,000, that's, that's a huge blow to, 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 to your fighting force. How, how, do you, how do you sustain this? I mean, what... Why, why do they continue? What's, what other options do they have to, 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 to make this work out? Because it's obviously on all levels. It's not working out. Well, why do they continue to insist on, uh, on, on pushing this thing forward? Well, the reason they insist on pushing this thing forward is because the uh, neocons in the United States insist that this must be done. So, I mean, the logical thing, from a military point of view, and, you know, this is, I'm not somebody who's a military person, but this is something that you now see in more and more places. The logical thing for Ukraine to do at this time is to call off the offensive, uh, um, pull its forces back, consolidate, build fortifications, and try to defend. I mean, that would be what apparently people like General Zaluzhny are seeking to do. But the, they're running up against the problem that a whole lot of people in the United States, Blinken, Newland, Milley himself to a certain extent, dare I say it, the president also pushed Ukraine into this offensive. And they can't, of course, now simply accept that the offensive has failed. They can't have Ukraine declare the end of the offensive and pull back and retreat and defend and consolidate in that kind of way. Because if they did that, well, that would open up 
the whole question in the United States of the wisdom of the administration's policies, which is a political problem, but it might also put the neocons, the hardline neocons, Blinken, Newland, to some extent Sullivan, the president himself, on the back foot as they're being increasingly pressed by those people who I will call the realists. We've discussed what they really are, the, the uh, anti-China hardliners, not the anti-Russia hardliners. Those people who want to call the whole thing off so that the United States can now refocus on China. And uh, we've talked about who they are, people like Richard Haas, the people at the Council of Foreign Relations, some people within the Pentagon. It turns out that another important figure that's increasingly talking in this way is Edward Lutwak, who is uh, an important theorist, uh, an influential theorist in the United States, who has um, a lot of traction at the Pentagon and who advises the US military on, on strategy, on grand strategy. So all these people are now saying this Ukrainian thing is failing. We've got to call a stop. They're perhaps less invested in the survival of the Biden administration than the Blinken, uh, Newland, Sullivan axis are. They want to call a stop because they're focused instead on what they see as the other war, the one that really matters which is the one, the one against China, which they expect the United States to be involved in in a few years' time. There's, there's going to be no uh, conflict for the neocons with China if, if this continues in, in Ukraine, that's for exactly. sure. I mean, exactly. Um, you know, you exactly. can already see, I, I think there's a trend in Europe, in the EU, of, uh, of officials not even wanting to to discuss Ukraine anymore. You, you know, like six months ago, they were boasting about, oh, you know, Ukraine is going to defeat Russia. Russia is, uh, is collapsing. The big counteroffensive is going to, to push back the Russian military. You had a lot of uh, EU officials talking it up. And they were very excited, very ecstatic about the, uh, the upcoming uh, offensive and, and the outcomes of that offensive. Now, you don't hear anyone talking. I mean, Olaf Schultz is not saying anything. Uh, when Baerbach does say something, it's usually uh, stupid stuff about EU values. Van der Leyen, she's not talking about the Russian uh, economy being in tatters or the Russian military being in tatters. Even Stoltenberg, he had a call with uh, Zelensky the other day. And, you know, when I, when I took a look at the readout uh, of the call, whatever was, what was provided to us, it seemed like Stoltenberg was very stoic about providing more help for Ukraine in this call. And it was Zelensky almost like begging Stoltenberg, saying, no, trust me, we're going to, something big is going to come from our military soon. We've got some big plans. Can you guys just get involved in the Black Sea? Can you move NATO uh, ships into the, into the Black Sea and protect the grain? And it seemed like uh, Stoltenberg was, was not so, so positive about uh, Zelensky and Ukraine anymore, where just a few months back, he was also talking about uh, Russia's defeat. It, it does seem that things are are shifting. Yeah, the mood is the mood is indeed shifting. And by the way, um, one cause, one very important cause, might be looking at what's happening in Germany, where the IFD is now twenty two percent. They're still rising. <laughs> I mean, they they are they are now close to breaking through. To give an to give an idea, 
the leading party is still the CDU in Germany on 26%. So the IFD is just four points short of being the most popular party in Germany. So that gives you some idea of the shift in the mood. And remember, Germany is ultimately the, central, the, the key central country. So that, that probably is to some extent concentrating the minds. But of course, the situation on the military fronts is, 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 is doing so even more. There's, they don't want to get drawn into a war with Russia. I mean, I think this is quite clear that the EU leaders themselves aren't keen on this idea. If some kind of reckless adventure in Western Ukraine involving Poland and Lithuania is hatched, there will be a lack of enthusiasm for it in West, in West European capitals. They're sensing that popular mood is turning against them. They're worried about the fact that the recession is growing and they can see the facts on the battlegrounds. So they were promised a breakthrough and it didn't come, and they're getting very tired of the fact that Zelensky and Zeluzhny and Reznikov and all of these people come and endlessly demand more and more military equipment, which Western Europe simply doesn't have to give anymore. But I think beyond all of these facts, I think there was another event which was a profound shock for them, and which has gone almost completely unreported, which is an important fact in itself, which is that there was an EU Latin America summit meeting. The Latin American states of the EU came together. This was very much a part of the EU strategy of forging links with Latin America. They've said that they've neglected Latin America, um, all of that. And what they came up against was a wall of criticism from all the Latin American countries, including pro-Western countries like Colombia, a wall of criticism of EU policy over Ukraine. And I think they were also expecting or hoping and keeping their fingers crossed that the cancellation of the grain deal would win the EU friend, you know, with the Western position friends in Africa. It hasn't turned out to be that way at all. There's a big Russia-Africa summit being prepared. And I think that they've, it's finally dawned upon them that international opinion is not on their side over this issue. And if you spend any time with EU officials, you know that for them, wider opinion around the world matters. I mean, it's very much part of their own self-conception. You know, that Europe is the great civilization everybody looks up to. When everybody tells you you're wrong, it, it does affect them a lot. Yeah, I, I followed the Latin American summit closely, and you have now in uh, St. Petersburg in the next uh, two days, uh, you have the, the Africa-Russia summit, the second, I believe it's the second uh, annual summit between Russia and African nations. And, um, you know, the when I was covering the, the EU-Latin America uh, summit, it seemed like, like the European Union was under this belief that, and, they, and it seems like they really did believe it, that, that the entire world was with them and the entire world was indeed against Russia. And it seems like they, they almost had a, 
an aha moment, a, 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 an awakening of sorts where they finally realize that, you know, we're the ones that are isolated. Yes. People yes. don't really like us. Other countries really don't like us. Other countries really don't agree with us. Other countries are really aligned with Russia and not us. I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to believe that these prime ministers and presidents and Brussels officials that supposedly are so intelligent and so well-informed and, and, uh, and the, the elite, these are the elite, that they have no idea that they're actually disliked and isolated while Russia is the country that is winning in, uh, in diplomacy. It's, 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 it's shocking, but it, it seems like they are indeed in a bubble. Absolutely. And, you know, you'd have expected that after a year and a half of this, you know, the penny would have dropped even before this Latin American EU summit had started, that they wouldn't go into the summit all guns blazing, saying we've got to have condemnation of Russia. I mean, which is what they did. I mean, it's incredibly crass diplomacy, actually, that, they, you know, that they, they should have realised that they needed to pick around this subject. But, as you say, they are in this bubble. They can't, couldn't quite believe, I suspect, that most of the world doesn't think as they do on this. It does seem as if it finally broke through. The fact that the EU Latin American summit was such an important event is confirmed for me by two things. Firstly, there was a big build-up to it. There was lots of articles in all parts of the, various parts of the media about the fact that it was going to happen. And then when it did happen, it disappeared from the media entirely, <laughs> at least in Europe. You, you, I mean, you, you barely read anything about it. You had to go to specialist publications, do the kind of research you and I do to find out what actually happened. Okay, so uh, where, where do we go from here? Well, logically... I think it's safe to say, it's safe to say that across the, as we said, across the entire spectrum, the, the collective West is, is, is losing. The, the wheels are coming off. Yes. The wheels are starting to come off. I'm not saying this is going to end tomorrow or in a month or three months, but the, it, we are getting clear signs and indications that, uh, that this is not going to work out. Biden White House is not going to work out for Ursula. It's not going to work out for Zelensky. Where, where do we go from here? Well, I, I, I suspect that sometime, probably in the late autumn, early winter, we're going to see that the momentum, the pressure to start some kind of negotiation process to try to avoid a debacle, because by then what they will understand is that they're looking at a debacle, not just a failure, but a catastrophic failure. Uh, at that point, I think the pressure will grow. Um, I say that, that there is countervailing pressure. There are also people who want to escalate. There are people who want to push the poles into all kinds of reckless adventures in uh, um, Western Ukraine. Putin had a lot to say about that also. But I think in the end, there's no great enthusiasm in Europe for this, at least in Western Europe. I think that in the end there won't be much enthusiasm in the US either. So there will be pressure to negotiate. The problem is that getting to that point is going to be incredibly difficult because the Blinken-Newland axis are going to resist every inch of the way. 
there's going to there's apparently some pressure on the president to change his foreign policy team, but he's reluctant to do that because he shares his their sentiments. So when we eventually get to some kind of an agreement, an internal agreement within the West to open negotiations with the Russians, it will have been negotiated between the Western parties, the Western countries, and within the various factions of the United States. And that all but guarantees that the negotiations will be a failure because what they will agree upon is a position which the Russians won't accept. Now, Medvedev has come out, he's written a long piece in Rosiskaya Gazeta, which is the official newspaper of the Russian government. And basically he sets out very clearly what kind of a negotiation the Russians would be looking for. And obviously they want a comprehensive settlement of the conflict in Ukraine. And that means a complete restructuring of the political system there. Something way beyond, for example, what was discussed in Istanbul and in Belarus last year. Um, so we're not going back to that situation. But Medvedev is also talking about a changes in the security structure in Europe. In other words, he's addressing the question of NATO, its long-term purpose, its function, and all of that. Now, there is no consensus in the West willing to discuss that. In fact, for the moment, the consensus is that they won't discuss it. So what will they do? They will try to start a negotiation process with the Russians. It won't make any kind of sense. They the Russians will probably say no. Zaharova has already made statements about this meeting between um, Lavrov and Richard Haas in New York. She said that this wasn't even tier two negotiations. This was nothing. This was just a meeting with political scientists. Clearly, Lavrov wasn't impressed with what these people had to say. So the Russians are going to take a very strong line, which is completely unsurprising. Why would they do otherwise? We have moved 180 degrees from the position that existed when the Russians imposed, uh, 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 proposed those two draft treaties in December 2021. At that time, the Russians said, let's negotiate about these. And the West was basically saying no. Now, it's the West, I suspect, which in a few months' time will be saying, let's negotiate. And it'll be the Russians who will say, no, not on the terms you are suggesting. Certainly not on any basis of freezing the conflict on Korean lines which is the best that the West can come up with. We want a comprehensive settlement, not just of Ukraine, and, but also the situation in Europe. And the West will not agree to that because they can't. And that will mean that the war will continue until the Russians finally dictate terms. Okay, on that note, we will end the video there at thedurand.locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, and Rockfin. And go to the Durand shop, 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.